so welcome to everybody to the uh, latest in the series of uh, lectures. Um, that were, this is the 21st um, anniversary series of lectures from the Centre for Economic Performance. I'm John Vanderine, I'm the director of the CEP. And uh, this is the last um, seminar in the summer term. And uh, we're very delighted to have uh, Professor Stephen Nichols, CBE, to give this, uh, this lecture. Uh, he really is a man who needs no introduction, but I will do that anyway, since it's my job. Um, so Steve is the uh, warden of Nuffield College, Oxford, since 2006, and also with the uh, newly formed Office of Budget, Budget uh, Accountability. He's uh, one of the world's leading economists. Um, there's a few areas that, of applied economics that Steve hasn't worked in. Uh, he's worked in particular in economic theory, wages, jobs, productivity, unions, well-being and housing, which is the subject of tonight's lectures. He always, always has something thoughtful and interesting and usually controversial to uh, say, so I'm very look, looking forward to tonight's lecture. Steve, of course, has had a long history of association with the London School of Economics. He did his master's here. He was a lecturer and then professor here before escaping to Oxford for a sojourn and then returning here as, uh, as a professor. Um, he then uh, uh, unfortunately left again to go to Oxford soon after I arrived. I heard that was not a causal consequence, but just a correlation. Um, I've worked with Steve on issues to productivity uh, and competition, one of the themes of the CP. And the subject of tonight's lecture is too many people in Britain, immigration and the housing problem. And uh, as I'm sure Steve will mention, this probably relates in part to his interest working in the National Housing and Planning Advice Unit. So over to you, Steve. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, that was uh, very generous. Uh, I, I've been instructed to say one thing to start with. Uh, nothing in this lecture reflects the views of the Office of Budget Responsibility. The views expressed in this lecture are entirely my own. So having got that out of the way, I'm going to, uh, to talk about... Uh, uh, first of all, I'm going to talk about immigration and the economic effects of immigration, uh, and uh, the contribution of immigration to, to population growth. And then I want to move from there to ask the question, well, why does housing, house building lag behind population growth? Uh, and more generally, why do we find it so hard to, uh, to house our population decently? Uh, and has this got anything to do with immigration? So let's, uh, let's start with, uh, with, with immigration. Um, first of all, there's an important definition. In most of the statistics that are banded around about immigration, immigration immigrants are people who are foreign-born, people who are born abroad. Uh, the Duke of Edinburgh, for example, is a, is a perfect example. And I can see, even looking around here, there are some other examples. Uh, and not to mention the England cricket captain uh, is, uh, is another, uh, another example. So, when I say immigrants, I mean people who are foreign-born. Um, and that, of course, doesn't mean they're foreign. Uh, a substantial proportion... Uh, around uh, 35, 40 percent of uh, immigrants are UK citizens. Um, most immigrants have been here for quite a long time, and uh, most of them are from outside the EU. Around three quarters of them are from outside the EU. 
Now, um, the history of immigration, or particularly net, net migration, that is inflows minus outflows, is, uh, is quite an interesting one. So here's a picture. Um, the, uh, there's the gross uh, outflow and the gross inflow, and then the, uh, the yellow gold uh, uh, things at the bottom are the net numbers. And, and what you can see immediately is that uh, net migration used to be pretty modest. It used to be by and large negative, and then uh, it used to be rather modest and positive. And then in the late 1990s, uh, net migration moved to over 100,000. Uh, the average over the last decade is probably 160, 170,000. And in the last 12 months uh, of data that we actually have, it's 240,000. Um, so I suppose the interesting thing about, about, uh, about this picture is why, why did it go up in, in the late 1980s? Uh, 19, late 1990s, sorry. And uh, there are a number of factors. Uh, I think that uh, the uh, opening up of, of, of world, the world labour market for skilled labour has had a role to play. The buoyancy of the UK labour market... From the late 90s onwards, the UK labour market was more buoyant than it had been for the previous 20 years. Uh, another factor which is very important is uh, the very significant growth in the number of, uh, of students from abroad. Uh, there has been an enormous uh, growth in in, in uh, students from outside the UK from the 1990s to the present, which many people think of, think of as being a sort of success story in the sense of uh, uh, the success of, the, of, of UK higher education in attracting uh, uh, customers from, from around the world. Finally, of course, in, uh, in, 19, uh, in 2004... Uh, the, there was the expansion of the EU and the A8 countries uh, uh, people from the A8 countries particularly Poland uh, were able to come freely to work in the, in the UK and that of course had a significant impact these numbers they look relatively big 200,000 or so is, is quite a large number but compared with some other countries, these are very small, modest numbers. I mean, Spain, for example, over a number of years in the early 2000s, was uh, receiving over 600,000 net migration every year. Um, but uh, nevertheless, the, the number 200,000 a year um, you know, it adds up to an extra million people every five years, which is uh, not, not insignificant. Where, where do people come from? Around, uh, if you look at the, the stock of immigrants, um, over 40%, about 43%, are from uh, Africa and the Indian subcontinent. Around 35% are, uh, are from Europe, and the rest are from all over the world. Uh, 
Australia, Asia, New Zealand, and so on, and the United States. Now, what are they like? Well, by, on, on average, um, most new migrants come here to either work or study. Um, there's a smaller and relatively stable flow entering for, for family reasons. Um, and overall, immigrants tend to be better educated than the native-born, are slightly less likely to be employed, uh, notably because uh, in some uh, immigrant groups the employment rates of, of women are particularly low. Uh, for example, women from, from Bangladesh. Um, what do immigrants do? Well, by and large, they, they do everything. Um, they run multinational corporations, uh, like Lloyd's Banking Group. Uh, they, uh, as I've mentioned before, they captain the England cricket team. Immigrants are very... Uh, more test matches in the, since the year 2000 uh, have been played by an England cricket team captain, captained by an immigrant than captained by a native-born person. Uh, they become professors, of course, hospital consultants, investment bankers, at one end, and at the other end they become care workers, flower pickers, waiters, uh, and so on. And if you look at the... Uh, if you look at the immigrant to native ratio by occupation, one-digit occupation, there and there's some variation there, but there's a pretty broad spread across the occupations. And if you uh, drill down to more refined measures of occupation, you'd still get a pretty broad spread. The only absolutely exceptional group is health professionals, where uh, the uh, immigrant proportion is about 35%, much higher than in any other occupational group. Um, but otherwise, as you can see, there's a very broad spread across occupations. And uh, that, that's, of course, consistent with the um, fact that uh, the, if, you, if you look at the average immigrant, um, then you see someone whose educational level is similar but maybe a bit higher. Um, the skill the distribution across the immigrants is very similar to the native population. And so uh, this, uh, this uh, broad spread of uh, immigrants across occupations is, uh, is simply consistent with, uh, with, that, with that kind of story. So what, what's the impact? I mean, here I'm going to summarize in a few uh, brief words, the, uh, the impact uh, of uh, immigrants on the, on the native-born. Well, first of all, the, the obvious thing is what, what's the impact of immigration on, on GDP per capita? And the answer is pretty much nothing. Uh, it, 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 there are lots of papers written on this, and sometimes you get a small positive number and sometimes you get a small negative number, depending on what people put in and what people leave out. But by and large, 
there's uh, no significant effect. Um, I was that the, the, what's the impact on unemployment? Well, overall, the impact on unemployment seems to be, uh, uh, to, to all intents and purposes, zero. And I like to argue that's because the British labour market works. Um, if uh, you look at some other countries, you find, not, not perhaps surprisingly, that, that countries with uh, highly regulated labour and product markets uh, in, in such countries, immigrant, immigration has a bigger impact on, uh, on unemployment, a uh, bigger positive impact on unemployment, uh, uh, whereas in, the, in this country it's, uh, it's very small. Now, there is some, what about wage effects? Well, there is some evidence that, that uh, uh, particularly among uh, the unskilled that, uh, and, and unskilled services, there is some... Uh, evidence that uh, uh, the pay uh, in, in those occupations is a bit lower than it would be without, uh, without my, in migration, in particular without the migration surf, surge from the A8 countries, but we're talking relatively small numbers here, uh, maybe, uh, maybe 3%. So what, what's the problem? I mean, there's... there's uh, there's no question that uh, uh, migration is, uh, it, it is, a, is a political issue. I mean, if you... Uh, today I'm talking about migration and I'm talking about housing. If you look at the... Uh, if you ask people in surveys what are the most important uh, uh, things that they, they worry about, um, then... Migration is always pretty near the top of the list. Housing, on the other hand, is pretty near the bottom of the list. H housing is not, a, not politically very important, at least in terms of uh, what people say. Um, but, uh, so, so what, what's the problem? Well, first of all, of course, immigration is, uh, is not uniformly spread around. Uh, so there have been dramatic changes in, in, uh, in the ethnic and cultural mix in, in some localities, and some people are obviously upset by that. Um, but the other fact, of course, is that uh, the surge in net migration since the late 1990s, um, so anyway, there it is, uh, that, that surge in, in net migration has... Uh, an impact, significant impact on, on population growth. So recently, uh, household growth in in the in England, these, this is this uh, is is around two hundred thousand a year, and about thirty to forty percent of that is down to uh, to net migration. The rest of it is to do with family breakup and rising life expectancy. Um, now, more people, of course, means more homes, uh, more roads, more power stations, more waste incinerators, more airport runways, and uh, the, evid the evidence suggests that most people appear to dislike these things. Um, in particular, of course, they, they dislike housing development. Uh, most people just don't like housing development. It's 
It's quite a change, really, because when, uh, after the war, and for about 20 years until the mid-1960s, I guess, housing was a big issue, a big political issue. Building houses was uh, very important, and politicians uh, thought it was an excellent idea to tell people uh, that they were going to build lots of houses. And they made promises about the rate of house building, 300,000, going up to 400,000 uh, a year. Um, and this was considered to be a good thing. Somehow or other, uh, I, don't, I don't want to go into the reasons, but for one reason or another, by about the 1990s, that had all disappeared. House building, I mean, by and large, if you told someone you were a developer... This was kind of, this is about the lowest level of occupation down there with with uh, with journalists and, and politicians. Uh, developers were probably even lower, um, and uh, and the developers were people who built houses for a living, and this was just not considered very proper thing for a gentleman to do, and. Uh, so uh, let, let's go on to talk about housing with regard to this, uh, this, increasing, uh, this increasing population. And look at the de let's look at the demand for housing. Well, the demand for housing basically depends on two things. It depends on uh, uh, real incomes and generally rising real incomes and the number of households. Those are the two key factors. It can be influenced by the availability of credit, etc., etc., but the driving forces are number of people and how well off they are. Now, the, the evidence uh, that we possess suggests that uh, the, the, uh, the income elasticity of demand for housing exceeds the absolute value of the price elasticity. Putting it another way, um, if, uh, if incomes go up by, by 1%, the evidence suggests that the demand for housing goes up by about 1%. Uh, if prices go up by about 1%, then the evidence suggests that the demand for houses falls by about half a percent. So that's, that's what the numbers seem to come out like. But this is very important because what this means is that as real incomes grow that, uh, and let us suppose for the sake of argument that the number of houses that are built keeps pace with the increasing number of households. In that world, as real incomes grow, house prices will outpace incomes. That is, the price of houses relative to incomes will rise. And it has risen. Uh, since about 1975, house prices has risen, have risen about one percentage point per annum faster than incomes. And that's completely consistent with this elasticity story. In fact, since this elasticity story is uh, based on time series regressions, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, this fact was a, uh, one of the 
driving forces behind the estimates of the elasticities that appear in the equations. But the, this, is a, this is a very important sort of long-run fact. Now, what about... Uh, I mean, the, the other factor, apart from rising real incomes, and, of course, uh, where we are today, at this moment, real incomes are falling. They've been falling for, for some little time, so uh, that, that of itself will have an, uh, an immediate impact on, on house price growth. But what about, what about uh, house building and uh, the, the growth in uh, population? The fact is that since, since uh, about 2000, the uh, uh, rate of house building in, in, in England has been lagging behind uh, the rate of household growth to the tune of about 40,000 per annum. Uh, that, that's the gap. Um, so given that and given what happens to real incomes, of course the buoyancy of house prices in, in the last uh, decade is, uh, is, is, is reasonably understandable, uh, leaving aside, of course, the, the easy availability of credit, which I should come back to. But there's another problem, of course, uh, with the way we do things in this country. Um, we, we have a absolute insistence on building houses in the wrong place. We build houses where there aren't people. Uh, that's a sort of crude, uh, a crude uh, uh, sort of description. But to be more precise about it... Um, in England and Wales, about half the people live in the south. And by the south, I'm going to mean the southeast, the southwest, London and the east. So about half the people in England and Wales live there, and the other half of the people live in the rest, uh, which I shall call the north, although people from Wales might be irritated by this, but let's call it the north. Now, in the decade up to uh, 2007, the population in the south rose by 7%. The population in the north rose by 2.9%. So, guess where they built more houses? Not very difficult. In the north. Uh, that's interesting of itself. Um, because, of course, we know that house prices are much higher in the south, and you might have thought that you, sort of market forces, demand, higher house prices, would have led to more houses being built in the south. And the difference is very small, but, of course, the very fact that there aren't many more houses being built in the south than the north is, uh, is, uh, is quite significant. Now, I, you notice that I've been... Uh, talking a little bit about what happened up until uh, till 19, uh, so, sorry, till 2007, 2008. Of course, everyone knows that the uh, house prices uh, have, have, have fallen a bit uh, recently, and, uh, you know, shortages in the housing market, therefore, might be thought to have uh, declined. So I'd just like to go... I'm going to go on a digression now, uh, if you'll forgive me, um, because uh, 
I want to uh, discuss just briefly the role of the, how, the UK housing market in, uh, in the recent uh, episode of uh, recession and credit crunch uh, over the last three years. Now, now, there's a sort of standard story. Now, I'm not saying anyone here subscribes to this story, but I, there are a lot of people who do. Uh, first part of the standard story is the UK housing market from 2000 to 2007 was driven by reckless lending. And by and large, it all ended in tears. The lenders lost vast sums of money in the UK housing market, and the ensuing credit crunch generated the recession. Uh, so the Financial Services Authority, for example, has just produced a huge document saying how we've got to tighten regulation on the, on the British, uh, British housing market because of its disgraceful performance. Okay. Some facts. Uh, UK mortgage lending in the, uh, in the early 2000s was extremely prudent compared with any other form of lending you care to name. Uh, interestingly enough, the average loan-to-value ratios, that is the amount you lend relative to the value of the property on which you're lending it, average loan-to-values were lower in the decade after 1998 than they were in the decade prior to 1998. In fact, I can safely tell you that the UK crash had nothing whatever to do with reckless lending in the UK housing market. The losses of UK financial institutions on lending in the UK housing market have been negligible. So I've got, even got some numbers. Losses of UK banks and building societies, 2008 to 10. Investments in United States subprime mortgage-backed securities and related instruments in excess of £40 billion. Lending to non-financial companies, including commercial property, £14 billion. Unsecured lending to UK households, £24 billion. Lending to UK households secured on UK property, £2 billion. That's out of a total loan book of in excess of £1 trillion. Now, if that isn't safe lending, I don't know what is. Uh, you could hardly imagine safer lending than that. Anyway, um, so uh, that's a sort of digression. Get that off my chest, basically, uh, because I can't stand reading articles telling me about the, the problems in the UK housing market. Okay. Now, of course, in, in, recent, uh, in recent times... Uh, we've seen a small fall in house prices and a collapse in house building. Uh, despite ever-increasing numbers of people. Uh, and there are two reasons, of course. One is falling real incomes, which has an immediate effect. And the other is, of course, a desperate shortage of mortgages to first-time buyers. Uh, and this has led <coughs> to uh, a sort of... Uh, downward pressure on the, on the housing market and a collapse in the profitability of house building. And, and this is the consequence of the, the credit crunch and uh, the recession. But household growth, of course, is, continues to remain buoyant. 
So overcrowding continues to rise. Rents are now rising quite rapidly. And more and more people continue to be pushed into the social rented sector. So here's some numbers for you. In, in the social housing register, between 1997 and 2001, the number of households on the, on the register, that's the waiting list for social housing, not a very accurate uh, absolute number, but the, if it goes up a lot, that does mean something. Anyway, it hardly rose between 97 and 2001. It rose by 500,000 between 2001 and 2005, and a further 200,000 since 200, 205. So you, you started off with a level of about a million, so it's getting on for doubling over this period. And of course this is what happens uh, if you have a housing shortage, if you don't build enough houses. Um, the, uh, what basically happens is that, that uh, if you don't build enough houses, the houses get more expensive then the houses to rent get more expensive and people just drop out of the bottom into, uh, into overcrowding and onto, onto waiting lists. And of course immigrants are to some extent getting the blame for, for, for some of this. Um, so let's, one could do a few little sums and, and try and work out what the contribution to the, to the housing shortage uh, is from, from net migration. Now the way, uh, the way I look at it goes as roughly as follows. Um, the trend in real post-tax household incomes, despite what's happening today, uh, which is pretty grim, the trend in real post-tax household incomes is positive and generally grows around 1.5% a year sometimes a bit more, sometimes a bit less. Now, if you crunch through the numbers, you find that e even if uh, uh, the number of households not growing at all, that alone would require, the rise in real incomes would require 150,000 houses to be built in Britain every year just to stabilise house prices relative to income. So you need 150,000 a year just to cope with the fact that, that the extra demand for housing generated by real income growth. Then, uh, even if there's no net migration at all, the growth in the number of households is likely, likely to exceed 120,000 a year. So add the two together, 270,000 a year, a rate of house building we haven't seen for quite a long time. Let's try to show you where there. Look, this is house building in England. What you can see, it's quite interesting actually. What, what you can see from that is that, that uh, between uh, the 50s and the 60s and the early 70s, house building was 250, 300,000 a year, being driven by particularly by local authorities, house building. The, the purple private enterprise line, you can see, is relatively flat throughout. But back in the 60s, 50s and 60s, local authorities were really building a lot of houses. I mean, they may not have been any good in some cases, but they were building houses. Interestingly enough, 
Back in the 1930s, the private sector used to build over 300,000 houses a year. But that, that, of course, was a different planning regime entirely from the one we have now. Um, but that, that goes to show what the private sector could do if it had incentives and, and, and the ability to, to build a lot of houses uh, in terms of planning. So, remember, to, even if we had no migration, we, we need about 270, which we, we built you know, for some of that period. But we're not getting close to it now. And, uh, and so there's a, the question of what, what, one can, uh, what one can do about all this. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is people complain, there's a lot of complaints about uh, um, you know, people being unable to get on the housing ladder, we can't uh, get mortgages, etc., 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 uh, so why don't we kickstart the housing market, it is said, by helping first-time buyers with subsidised mortgages. And this probably helped the house builders somewhat. Um, but of course, by and large, this is not a, good, not a very good idea because uh, if, the, if, you, if the house building doesn't keep up, just... Uh, blowing up the demand just raises the price of houses. I mean, you have to ration houses among people. If there are more people, you have to ration the houses. And there are only two ways of doing this. One is by rationing credit and the other is by price. And, uh, and we used to have price and now we've got a bit more of credit rationing. Um, but uh, by and large, some form of rationing or other has to be done because... Uh, you know, you can't have more and more people getting on the housing ladder. Where are they going to live? There aren't any more houses. There aren't enough houses for them. So the obvious thing to do uh, is, uh, is to build more houses. Now, it's very important not to make the mistake of saying, oh, well, look at all those people on the housing list, on the waiting list. We've just got to build more affordable houses. You've got to build more cheap houses. Um, the fact is we've got to build more houses if you build expensive houses uh, or family homes um, then what this means is that they, they become uh, cheaper so more people are able to move out of uh, middle range housing into expensive housing which is less expensive making space in the middle range housing so people in the lower range housing can move into the middle range housing it also becomes cheaper and that takes the pressure off the bottom now that of course as I hope to demonstrate is a very cheap way of doing things um, a much more expensive way of doing things for the government is to build more affordable housing because the government has to build the housing by and large or has to subsidise someone else to build the housing and as we all know, they don't have much money. So uh, uh, that, that's a very expensive way uh, of dealing with things. Uh, a, a much uh, better way, surely, is to uh, encourage new development by the private sector. Now, why do so few homes get built then? Uh, and the answer, particularly in the south, where there are more people and they need more homes, um, 
And the answer is very straightforward. The supply of building land is controlled by local authorities. Local authorities are the only people, basically, who can give permission to build houses. Um, you, it's just not a, you cannot just go and build a house on a plot of land you happen to own. You have to get the permission of the local authority. Local authorities, by and large, are opposed to housing developments. They don't like it very much. And why is this? Well, there are basically two reasons. One is most of their constituents don't like it. And since their constituents vote them in, um, if the constituents don't like it, then they don't like it. So the local authorities, there's, there's no votes in allowing development, or not many. And secondly, there's insufficient financial benefit for the local authority in, uh, in if they allow new development. There is some financial benefit, but just not enough. What they need is big financial benefits to them, so that, to put it crudely, they can bribe their constituents to like development. Now, Tim Lunig, who is a, uh, 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 teaches uh, economic history in this uh, institution, ha has a very famous example, which is uh, he, he perhaps somewhat uh, optimistically thinks that uh, Oxford and Cambridge should both have about a million people living in them. And uh, he worked out that if you went to Cambridge and uh, took, uh, uh, bought a lot of farmland down ca around Cambridge and gave planning permission to build a million houses, uh, they could, he could auction the planning permission to the developers. And he reckons that uh, he could uh, generate enough income from auctioning these planning permissions in Cambridge provide every single existing resident of Cambridge with a million pounds. And he thought that, that maybe the existing residents of Cambridge might be somewhat in favour of this uh, proposition. And uh, so basically that's what's required. Local authorities have to generate, uh, have to be able to generate the income. Now, under the Labour Party, the Labour Party recognised uh, after Kate Barker's review and, and lots of other uh, reviews and so on, that the Labour Party recognised that there was a housing shortage. And so they, uh, they, they instituted some rather minor financial incentives, but they instituted a giant command and control system to try and encourage local authorities to, uh, to build more houses. And this was a very, uh, there was a lot of spatial strategies and planning guidance and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, and that, was, uh, that was the Labour Party policy. Uh, this is a giant command and control. The coalition government came in and of course the first act of their new uh, housing policy was to abolish the command and control system uh, in, immediately. Um, and then to introduce uh, some, uh, some more uh, financial incentives. Um, there's a, uh, the financial, I, I can't remember what it's called, the, 
house building bonus or some such. Uh, I've got the word somewhere, but anyway, they, they instituted a new bonus for local authorities if they allow house building uh, uh, on a per house basis. And, uh, but, but basically, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, add up to very much. Um, not enough, I don't think, in my opinion, for the uh, local authorities to, uh, to really jump on the bandwagon of, of, of house building. So, uh, in my view, what, what has to happen is that the, the uh, local authorities, there has to be a mechanism by which the local authorities can access the planning gain. That is to say, how much, uh, the amount by which uh, the value of the land rises if the local authority gives permission to build houses on it. So there's the residential land price per hectare and you can see that there are great chunks of the south of England where the residential land price in 2007 was over 6 million per hectare. Now remember that the agricultural land price is about 10,000 a hectare for good agricultural land. You can see, you know, so you take an, a field and a local authority apparatchik comes along and says, you've got permission to build on this field and the value of the field goes from 10,000 to 6 million in 10 seconds. Fantastic. So this is, this is an example of what can be done by rationing. You, you know, this is an amazing achievement of rationing to raise the value of uh, land for development to such astronomical levels. And uh, so basically what's required is a mechanism whereby uh, instead of the, the bonus uh, that goes to the landowner when this permission is granted, there must, the, you need to invent a mechanism where it goes to the uh, local authority and uh, there are various mechanisms and, and, and it, the, in the Netherlands they, they, they seem to manage to do this quite well I mean the trick is of course for the local authority to, to acquire the land to pass a rule which says only local authority owned land can have planning permission granted so the local authority has to acquire the land. I mean, the difficulty is always that if the local authority is sort of sniffing around, the price of the land starts going up. So, you know, you need a mechanism where maybe the local authority buys a lot more land than it's going to need in the, in the immediate future. But, of course, the, the gain from granting permission is so huge that uh, they can afford to uh, have land banks which... After all, they can always uh, lease it to, back to the farmers. You can always farm it until the local authority needs to use it. And, and various mechanisms of this type are, in fact, currently being investigated. And one such is, is, has been suggested by, uh, by Tim Lunig again, the, uh, uh, your, your, uh, your professor of economic history, at least one of your professors of economic history. So... So sort of getting towards the end, uh, of course a lot of people say, well, if we're going to be properly housed, um, isn't, isn't England going to be covered in concrete? 
Uh, and the answer is just no. Um, currently, around 10% of land in England is developed. And uh, that itself is quite a small number, although, of course, anyone who's flown over England in the dark will realise that's, you know, by and large, quite plausible. However, it's not plausible enough that uh, a majority of people in this country, at least in surveys, believe that more than 50% of England is developed. Um, and of course, these beliefs translate into to opinions and views on, on things. Anyway, around 10% is developed. And uh, if the projected population in 2060 were all well housed, that percentage might go up to as much as 12%, or even 13% if, uh, depending on the density of the, the housing, uh, which has not exactly been covered in, in concrete. So, to summarise, if, if we're going to be properly housed, we need more houses, and not just social houses. Uh, to get it, we probably need both uh, push, that is housing targets, spatial strategies, a bit of command and control, and pull, which is strong financial incentives for local authorities to allow development. Without this, housing shortages will just get worse, uh, and they continue to get worse even if net migration was stopped altogether. Uh, so, unfairly perhaps, uh, migrants will, uh, I suspect, get uh, a fair bit of the blame for all this. And uh, that's that. Thank you very much. So thanks, Steve, for a very stimulating lecture. Uh, we have some time for questions. I believe there's a roving mic around, so if you'd like to make yourself known, could you, uh, if you're asking a question, could you say who you are and uh, try and keep your questions uh, short so we have time for everybody's questions. I guess a gentleman, two gentlemen in the back. Thank you very much, Professor. Uh, Al, Al Mehmet, Vice Chairman of Migration Watch. Um, forgive me if I'm being obtuse. Was that a boo? <laughs> uh, yeah, forgive oh, me okay. if I'm being obtuse, but I didn't quite... Um, follow the impact even though you almost ended with the fact that immigrants might be blamed for um, uh, the shortage in housing but what, what in fact will be the impact on the additional numbers beyond adding to the waiting list oh well I, I mean as I said uh, rising, rising real incomes um, you need 150,000 extra houses a year uh, population going up not through migration you need 120,000 a year on top of that and then migrants uh, are about oh, 60,000 a year at the moment so you'd need uh, another 60,000 houses a year for, uh, to cover migration on top of the 270 a year you'd need without migration to stabilise the uh, the house price to to income ratio. So I hope answers your question. Um, you you mentioned about uh, or you showed the statistics for 
um, house building in the 1950s and 60s, which yeah. was about 250, 300,000. Yeah. Yeah, that, that diagram. Now, um, can I draw your attention to the fact that during the 50s and 60s, there was an enormous slum clearance program. Yeah. So the actual net addition to dwellings was very much smaller than those gross figures there. Yeah. Um, just to add a footnote to that, yeah. um, in recent times, there's been a tendency to neglect, uh, to, to focus on the building of new houses and to ne neglect the conversion yeah. of the existing buildings, like old farm buildings, office blocks, warehouses, and so on. That doesn't add enormous numbers, but nevertheless, that too should be taken into account. Together with the fact, of course, these days, slum clearance, uh, reduction in the housing stock due to slum clearance is relatively small. So I would suggest to you that the difference between the net addition to dwellings in recent years is not as great as suggested by your diagram. Yeah, no, that, of course that's perfectly true. Um, demolitions were higher in the 50s and 60s than, than, than they are today. I guess the purpose of, of showing this is to show that uh, the, the building industry could build more houses in those days than it appears to be able to do today. And uh, of course that social housing, which has now moved away from local authorities, the, the amount of housing built uh, in that category today is absolutely tiny compared with the amount of housing built in that category in the 50s and, and, and 60s. Um, but I agree with you that, that net additions... I mean, the, the thing is, of course, that because uh, population growth in the, uh, in the 50s and, and, and 60s was actually lower than it is today, um, in some sense, even taking account of... Uh, even taking account of the fact that, that uh, uh, there were more demolitions, um, the uh, pressure on the housing market in, in that period uh, was much less than... Uh, so there's much less of a housing shortage, even so, even with the demolitions. Question to Chris the Chris Giles in the Financial Times. Um, Steve, the, I don't want to in any way sort of contradict your findings, which I, I I'm agree sure with. I'm sure you'd love to. But, um, but I wanted to know whether we, in your digression about the banking system collapse in, uh, in recent years and your points that it was entirely not to do with domestic uh, mortgage lending. Correct. How much were we saved from an even worse banking crisis by our rather silly housing market so we didn't have... So we had so house prices were didn't collapse in the way Spain's and the U.S. house prices did because there the banks were hit very hard by their residential mortgage uh, lending. Yeah, well, uh, there is there is uh, something to be said for that. I mean, uh, compared with Spain and Ireland, uh, there is a sort of happy medium, perhaps uh, when uh, when. When Spain and Ireland were building houses, I mean, they, they just to give you some idea, in, in, 19, in 2006, Spain built, look at these numbers, Spain built 660,000 homes in 2006. 
with a population, about two-thirds of the population in, in England. So, I mean, relative to the size of population, uh, Ireland in, uh, in 2006 was building houses at seven times the rate we were building houses in the UK. So, I agree with you that some level of planning constraint in Ireland, if Ireland had had our planning system, they would probably have been better off today uh, than they are. Um, because they just wouldn't have been allowed to build these houses uniformly distributed across Ireland in some, some sense. Um, so yeah, I think there's something to be said for that. But I also think that, that uh, you know, over the long term it would be helpful if, uh, if uh, uh, development was, uh, was, more, uh, was easier in, in, in the UK. It doesn't have to be absolutely straightforward. There are sort of most countries in the world manage to build more houses relative to the population than, than we do, and they're not all, they don't all uh, end up like Ireland and, and Spain. Hi there, just a couple of questions. Um, an issue that I feel that's quite prominent within the UK, more so than our European counterparts, is that society's attitude towards the type of accommodation that they prefer is more drawn towards houses rather than rented accommodation in the sense that rented accommodation and flats are considered as inferior goods compared to housing. And then if you look at somewhere like You're Spain... Speaking to the microphone. Pardon? You're speaking to the microphone. Sorry, right. carry on. Uh, and somewhere like Spain where the type of accommodation of choice would be flats and rented houses, for example. Is that not a reason for our health problem in the UK? Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that because, uh, first of all, uh, the only occupation rate in Spain is higher than it is in the UK. Uh, secondly, uh, it is true that, that uh, owner occupation in the, is considered more desirable in the UK than uh, it is is considered, say, in Germany. Um, but that, I think that, that is, you know, the distinction between owner-occupation and renting has to be distinguished from flats and um, family homes. Uh, the fact is that in this country, despite the fact, as you rightly say, that uh, people like family homes with... People like homes with gardens. This is a well-known fact in Britain. This is what people like. This is not what gets built. Uh, there was a huge predominance in the, in the 2000s of building of flats in city centres, driven for, um, partly by the price of land, partly by rules about density, driven by all sorts of things. Uh, and, but not really driven by what, what people wanted. Um, so that uh, the shortage, insofar as there's, uh, there's serious shortages, the, the most serious shortages in family homes in this country uh, uh, and, and, and not in flats. But I wouldn't like to argue that uh, people in Germany don't like family homes. Um, it's just they don't mind renting family homes. And... Uh, I think, I think uh, 
Yeah, I mean, we have got some obsession with owning, owning our own homes, but the uh, owner-occupation rate in this country is falling, has been falling since, since about 2000, and will probably continue to fall. So uh, we are at the moment moving in the opposite direction. Sorry, uh, one more question? Sorry, if, I if have to give other people some oh. time, I'm afraid. So the question here is... In your speech, you explored very well uh, the possibility of building cheaper houses and building more houses, but I may be missing something. You didn't explore building possibly smaller houses, which, as I see it, is a very tidy alternative, which was adopted by Tokyo. And uh, following on from this discussion, uh, I'd like to think that one of the reasons that many local authorities aren't too keen on uh, developing land is because we have this strong tradition of uh, heritage preservation. Yeah. Well, taking your second point first, it's certainly true that uh, if if I stood up here with a normal audience and said, I think we need lots more houses on the green belt, everyone would start booing. (laughs) Um, And and that is certainly true, although as it happens, I believe we need lots more houses on the green belt. (laughs) Um, The... the, and, 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 and that's a political problem. And now I can't remember what the other point was. Oh, small houses. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, one interesting fact, I, I don't know about Tokyo, but have you ever been in a new house recently? <laughs> small isn't the word. We build the smallest houses in Europe, uh, as far as I know. And so, I mean, that's an inevitable consequence of the incredibly high prices of the land. You obviously want to pack stuff in, and you want to pack people in. And uh, so, uh, believe you me, developers have already thought of building small houses. They build them small. Uh, even, even, even big ones are small in some states. So sure. I wanted to ask whether uh, in, in this lecture you're, you've uh, implied that there is no house price bubble of any kind. So is it the case that in your work uh, the configuration of elasticities you talked about and the fact that we haven't had enough building is enough to explain the rise in house price earnings ratios and therefore those people who go around saying that these high house price earnings ratios are a symptom of a bubble that's inevitably going to crash uh, are just wrong. Uh, there was, uh, I don't know. If I had to think of a number, I would say bubble about 10%. It's gone. Uh, people who, who believe that the house price to income ratio is a, is a constant stable constant. seems to be a bit at odds with the fact that it's risen by 1% a year on average for the last 40 years. Uh, so it's kind of strange belief. That, that's my, my belief. So there might have been a bit of a bubble, but not a very big one. Okay. Um, gentleman of the structure so on the left. Yes? Oh. 
I was thinking the person behind you. We'll do you next. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, you seem to be putting um, quite a lot of weight on the sort of scope or the impact of local authorities capturing the development gain. In a sense, we've had a variant of that through what's called Section 106 planning gain. And that has had very little yeah. real impact. It's been very unreliable, very dependent on the marginal areas of the market activity. So I would be interested if you could explain why what you're proposing would work so differently from Section 106. <laughs> and just one other sort of point to note. You said it's very expensive to build social housing, but the Treasury is at the moment um, has a net revenue gain from local authority housing. So I think that if you look at the, 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 the revenue flows, in the long run, it's not necessarily cheaper, uh, more expensive to build social housing, especially if you take into account the housing benefit cost of private renting vis-a-vis -vis the much lower rents in social renting. Okay, um, let's take the second one first. Uh, Okay, so it's cheap, quite cheap to build social housing, but to say I grant planning permission is even cheaper, especially if you can get the, get the planning gain from it. Uh, that's the, the point I'm trying to make is, it's, it's, uh, is that uh, relaxing the planning restrictions is not, it's not a very expensive thing to do, and you could generate a lot of economic activity by doing so. The, the Section 106 argument, uh, when I... When I you said my proposals. I was quite careful not to provide any proposals for uh, precise proposals about how you capture the planning gain. I'm fully aware that uh, there, there, there have been efforts to capture the planning gain over the years and, that's, and perhaps section 106 is one of the least successful because for the effort you put in, section 106 is where basically you uh, build a building, you want to build a building, the council says uh, okay we'll let you build the building but you have to, you have to uh, build a new road or you have to build a cycle path and you say oh I don't really want to build a new road it's too expensive and then you go into a negotiation for about six months and then you end up coming to some agreement and for the amount of money you get, the amount of effort you have to put into it is, 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 is very excessive and puts a great strain on local authorities trying to, uh, trying to cope with it. So it isn't a very good method. I think a method based on <coughs> the local authority actually purchasing land and then auctioning some of it with planning permission is the, is the best way to go. And I believe the Dutch have a reasonable method uh, for, for getting, getting some of the planning going. But I, I don't have a cast iron method for doing it and my view is that, that you, you could try a certain number of things and you, you would have to pilot them. This is not going to this isn't going to be a sort of simple thing you can just enact. Uh, it's, kind of, it's a difficult business. But it has to be the way to go seems to me. Sorry, yes, so over there, yeah. Thank you. Um, your figures showed an increase in the outflow of population and an increase in the inflow. Indeed. So the uh, population is becoming increasingly different or different at, in, at an increasing rate. 
Uh, well, that depends on the, who's in the outflow. Okay. I mean, quite a lot of the outflow would be previous inflow, don't forget. Okay, well, allowing, it's a supposition now rather than a fact, but allowing for an increase in difference, is there any knock-on effect to housing policy? I realise it's a slight change of focus, but a lot of the scapegoating of immigrants has been in relation to people living close to them. Now, it gets us into the difficult area of, of uh, ethnic relations, but, but have you thought along those terms uh, at all? Uh, not, not really. Um, no, it's the short answer. But there are one or two things to bear in mind. Um, a lot of the, uh, this inflow and subsequent outflow, there's a lot of students in there. Of course, students have a special sort of, that they are uh, a special group in the housing market. And, uh, and at least in the city I live in, namely Oxford, they're not very popular. Uh, and the people don't like to live near them, uh, I should say. Um, but I haven't uh, sort of drilled down into you know, precisely how the, uh, the large net migration is changing the particular balance of uh, different ethnic groups and the relationship between that and, and housing, I, I'm afraid I haven't uh, pursued that. It's obviously an interesting subject, and I'm sure there are people who know all about it. Okay, question there, and the one in the back. Hi, my name is Mohammed. I work in the homelessness section. Um, Sorry, you work in? In homelessness, so I'm a housing officer. Oh, homeless, right. Um, I mean, I get this story every day of uh, blaming the immigrants. Um, we've got the number of social housing waiting lists, it's 9,000 um, in our borough. Right. And near, uh, near the nearer borough in Harrow or Brent, it's similar numbers. So what I'm trying to ask you here is, if there has been a political decision from local government to build less houses, but has there also been a decision from central government because for the last 20 years, um, there's been subsequent, subsequent governments have promoted home ownership. So if you look at historically, when um, Homes for Heroes were built, um, there was a political um, environment at that time to build more homes. But are we reaching a bomb, bombshell at the moment where we've reached that moment where we really need to build houses and we need to go back to what we did before in the 1945, 1950s? Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, I agree with you, we need to build more houses. Uh, secondly, I just think it's politically unlikely that we're going to build houses again on that model. Uh, that is the model of the 1960s, where local authorities built huge numbers of houses. My, my, uh, whether or not that would be a good thing... Uh, I wouldn't want to say, but in my opinion, it's not going to happen. And uh, I think that the, I think nevertheless that building more private sector homes would, I mean, they don't all have to be owner occupied. They can build, private sector homes can be built for rent. It, just expanding the supply 
would take the pressure off social housing because the pressure is sort of flowing down into social housing all the time because there are just not enough houses in the, in the non-social housing sector. So if you can just get more homes built in the non-housing, uh, a non-social housing sector, uh, that will help the social housing sector. That's basically what I'm saying. Question right at the back. My name is Mark Flessing. I run a private development company that builds intermediate housing for the squeezed middle without grant. So all of these themes are very familiar and um, I much enjoyed your talk. One observation and one question. The observation is that I've always thought we would reach a political tipping point on this subject at the point at which uh, the majority of MPs in Parliament had little to no housing equity. The point at which they actually realized themselves what it might be to be in intermediate housing need and the point at which they themselves might be averaging more like 30 years of age today rather than 50 years of age. And I can tell you that the, every theme that you touched on today breaks down on age grounds politically more than anything else. When I have a politician in front of me below the age of 45, he gets it, she gets it. When they're over 45, they don't. And the difference is not party political, it's how much housing equity they've got personally. So that's an interesting uh, fact. The, the question I've got for you is, is localism going to get in the way of uh, any more sense coming to uh, this marketplace, or are you uh, 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 secretly believe, a believer that localism may actually give some of the answers to a, a more streamlined planning system? Well, my, my, my instinct is that lo localism is not helpful. Uh, not going to be, it's not going to be helpful because in the way... It, I mean, since we know that... I live in the country near, near Oxford, and believe you me, there's a lot of local people I know very well, and their views on housing uh, are ones which are not going to produce any new houses near where I live uh, anytime soon. And my, feeling, my, my instinct is that the localism agenda will just reinforce this kind of, uh, this kind of view. Um, but as far as MPs and housing equity is concerned, um, I don't know. I, my instinct is quite still a bit, a bit of a way from that tipping point. Um, perhaps you've been talking to too many Labour MPs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we'll take a, a few questions together because Steve has to get the train back up to Oxford tonight. So uh, can we? Well, just, I have to eat first. You have to eat first, but uh, also eat first. <laughs> We have to get through the questions quickly. So could, there's two questions there, one in front of the other. Why does that make it quicker? Well, <laughs> I thought you wanted to go to the other. We, we can continue yeah, as long as you want, Steve. Sorry. Please carry on. Uh, before I uh, raise my main question, I just want to point out, you said that people in Germany uh, don't like living actually in uh, rented accommodation. I lived in Germany for some years myself. They couldn't care less. One of the reasons, in fact, why they're quite content is the standard of housing, in fact, in Germany is much higher. Yeah. No, I don't think I ever said they didn't like... I said they, they, they lived in rented accommodation in Germany and they were quite happy to do so. Oh, I see. I think you said quite the opposite. No. Sorry, I beg your pardon and I apologise. I misheard you. Now to my uh, question. It's based on an extremely biased sample, a number of acquaintances... Uh, mostly professional people, in fact nearly all professional people above uh, whatever was the prevailing average uh, wage. 
Uh, when I got married in 1963, I was able, without any income from my wife, in fact, to finance the purchase of a house. I was 26 when I got married. And that was the same, in fact, with all the colleagues and friends I had. I had quite a large network of friends. Today, amongst my friends and relatives, nephews, nieces, and the sons of other friends and so forth, I don't know of one couple who can finance a mortgage of a house of average price, depending in their district, without both of them working. Now, you said the banks weren't to, uh, weren't to um, blame, in fact, for the reckless uh, lending. Would you care to offer an explanation as to why this phenomena um, seems yeah. to have arisen in the last... It's very, it, it's very simple. I, I said it halfway through, and I've said it, repeated it again, in the last 40 years, the ratio of the price of house houses to people's incomes has been rising by 1% per year. Compound interest being what it is, that means that the price of houses today relative to incomes is much higher than it was 40 years ago. But why is that the case? Because real incomes have gone up and we haven't built enough houses. <laughs> there. If that, if that line, if that purple line had gone up as much as the green line had gone down, it wouldn't be so bad. Uh, okay, can we, I'm afraid we have to move on to the next question, thank you. Next, uh, next person. Um, you, you've pointed out the very high, well, pretty high income elasticity with respect to housing, um, but you haven't mentioned second homes or even third homes um, is that uh, the, the response to the high income elasticity is it reflected in second home ownership and if you got rid theoretically of all second homes in the country to what extent would you solve the housing shortage problem uh, well not very much but Second homes are, along with homes for your children while they're at university, etc., etc., that's all part of the, de the rising demand for housing when you get richer. Yeah, absolutely. So it doesn't just mean um, you want more house for yourself, but you want houses for your children and second homes and third homes and so on. And that's all part of that story. And... Uh, I, I've spoken to I, I've spoken to at least one MP who lives in uh, who's an MP in the in the southwest, where second homes are kind of very very significant part of some places, some villages, and uh, the practicalities, of course, of 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 not allowing second homes is just horrendous, because you see, if someone's selling a house down there. And uh, someone comes along and says, you can't sell your house to this person because then it'll be a second home. You can only sell your house to this limited group of people. They'll say, well, in that case, I can't get as much from my house as I thought I ought to get. And they get very cross and it, it's, it's a nightmare trying to, trying to think of ways in which you could actually, uh, actually ban it. Of course, you could charge you know, council tax times five for, uh, for second homes or something like that but uh, that's uh, 
it's a difficult problem. Okay, um, so there's a couple of questions in the middle. So, say by the gentleman at the back first, and then gentleman the white jacket. The white jacket first. Thank you very much. Um, Germany, as mentioned by yourself a couple of times, and the gentleman above and behind me to the right, is a fascinating example of uh, a what appears to me, I've spent 20 odd years there as well, uh, a successful housing market. It, um, and, you know, why don't we just look at the aspects and copy it? One of the classic, um, for those who don't, haven't lived there, don't know it quite as well, um, it's not just that there is very high class rented accommodation available which keeps people happy until they settle down with a family and have a job which doesn't move every two years. Uh, it, it's that the relationship between um, supply and demand, as reflected in the price of housing to income, has been stable for, when did I go there, 1982, I think, uh, the last 30 years. It works. Yes, I mean, uh, German, German housing market is, has got a, a degree of uh, attraction. Um, the uh, they're not having quite the same increase in, in uh, household growth that, that we are in Britain. Um, but as you say, there are various things about the German housing market which are, which are attractive. One possibility which, uh, which doesn't seem to have... Uh, which, it seems to be very difficult in Britain to make it happen. You can't have a very large rented, rental sector unless you can... Uh, unless you can get large investment companies who want to invest in uh, household rental accommodation in a big way. Because they, they're the, I mean, you can't just rely on, you know, buy-to-let landlords, even big buy-to-let landlords. Um, but there, there are various difficulties uh, that uh, face uh, large investment companies uh, when it comes to investing in residential property which are only currently being worked through. For example, um, they've just changed the stamp duty rules. You see, if you, if you're, if you, it used to be the case that if you were a, a, a company and you wanted to buy 100 houses, you had to pay stamp duty at 4% because the transaction, the percentage rate was based on the volume of the transaction, not the, vo not the price per house. Uh, so if they were sort of small, cheap houses, you only have to pay 1% if it was a price per house. And they've just changed that rule. So there are various uh, ways in which uh, we may be able to develop the, the rental sector. You see, the rental sector is going to develop willy-nilly because with the uh, rationing of mortgages for first-time buyers... You know, it's inevitable that private rented sector is going to grow and it would be better if it grew uh, on the back of uh, a, you know, sound investment rather than in a sort of rather ramshackle way uh, which I think is currently the way it's growing. Yeah, uh, you mentioned um, sort of jokingly about uh, council tax but um, wouldn't it 
actually be sensible if we shifted taxation from income to land value. Yeah. And if we did that, and I don't, I, don't, I don't know how politically acceptable that's ever likely to be, but um, if we did that, yes. uh, how, how far would it alleviate problems where land's being held out of use for speculative gain? Well, I think, I think there, are, there are many, many advantages to uh, having uh, your property tax based on land values, land value taxation. And uh, um, I, personally, I think it would be an excellent thing. But, of course, the, the difficulty is always going to be with people, particularly older people, who are income poor and asset rich. Once you start basing uh, your taxation on asset values, then there's a sort of eruption of, of uh, complaints and everyone shouting. I mean, and, and, and if you're going to introduce that kind of taxation, you have to do it in, a, in such a way that, uh, at the, from the outset, you take account of, of that problem and you, ha and you have to think of some mechanism for resolving that problem. Otherwise, politically, which is not going to happen. That, that's my feeling, anyway. Okay, there's a lot of hands and not much time, so let's, I'll try and gather up a few, and Steve can be selective over his answers if he wants. <laughs> or you can answer all of them if he wants to. So there's a gentleman there being very patient in the middle. Yes? Is that, have you, yes? Well, as long as you remember the questions. Thank you, uh, Rory Codd, LSE student. Um, professor, I'm interested to hear where you think uh, this unravels then, if the tipping point uh, the gentleman at the back spoke about is some way in the future, um, if at all coming, um, due to the localism you speak of, and if we continue to have the shortfall, therefore, going into this future, the trickle-down from the non-social into the social housing sector and the pressures that that will create in the UK for gentlemen like the housing officer who also asked a question earlier, yeah. um, more social than perhaps economic impacts, but where do you see this play out? I'm pretty pessimistic. Um, I think it's got a long way to go before the situation gets kind of intolerable. That, that's, but then, what, are, what do I know? I mean, the fact is that, that you can never tell with these social things um, because, as you rightly say, there may be some kind of tipping point and then something dramatic might happen. When that will be, who knows? But, uh, uh, you know, obviously as time goes on and the, you don't resolve the situation, it gets more and more likely. Uh, but when, it ha when it's going to happen, I, I don't know. Thank you. Junaid, I just wonder if you have done any uh, research on the number of empty properties in every council or counties. Because I remember there's been a campaign during the election, too many homes being empty and unoccupied. Any number, any figures? Yeah, well, I, I don't know the figures off the top of my head. Um, there are a fair number of empty homes, but um, it's also true that uh, the UK, generally speaking, has a, has a 
has one of the lowest levels of housing vacancy rates of any European country, um, which is consistent with a tight housing market. Now, of course, it is true that there are some people for whom the costs of having an empty home are not very great, and there are some empty homes, and there are people who just leave homes empty for years and years and years for, for, for whatever reason. Uh, and if the local authority can do something about that, that's a good thing. But the totality of empty homes, you know, if you filled all the empty homes, you wouldn't help that much. Question there. Hello. You spoke of resolving the housing shortage in the south by um, encouraging the private sector to develop more housing and by doing so it would make it more affordable and this would relieve the pressure on the social housing waiting list, yeah. which is all theoretically sound, but I see two real problems to this, being that in the south land values are so much higher and there is so much more incentive for the private sector to build the most expensive housing and if this was to fall in value it would still be far from affordable for the people on the waiting lists. And also, how could this ever practically be achieved on a scale which would be large enough to cause a um, fall in affordability? And with relation to these two issues, is it really a practical proposal to solve the problem? Yeah, I think it is practical. I mean, the fact that you say there's a lot of... Uh, first of all, it, it's obviously true that if... A, if uh, uh, house builders build several million pound houses, people on the wa housing waiting list aren't going to be able to afford them. That's perfectly true. But, but of course, that's not the argument I'm making. I'm making the argument that there were people who were originally in 900,000 pound houses who will be able to buy these houses because they're a bit cheaper than they vacate their houses, they get a bit cheaper and it, it goes down. Which is not to say I'm suggesting that all the development should be in million pound houses, and, and it won't be. The second thing is, it's a sort of cry of despair, which you're basically saying you can never build enough houses. And believe you me, if, you can't, if the private sector is not allowed to build enough houses, the social rented sector sure as hell is not going to be paid to build enough houses. So... Uh, the issue is basically allowing people to build houses. You don't have to encourage them. You just have to say, you're allowed to build houses on this land. They'll build the houses. Uh, they hardly need much encouragement. They just need to be allowed to do so. And Spain, and, and now I'm not going back to, to Spain and Ireland. Spain and Ireland have, have demonstrated how big a construction industry can become <laughs> if uh, you know, they're allowed to build houses. Now, of course, I wouldn't wish to suggest that the British construction industry became that big, but it can get a lot bigger, believe you me, without, without uh, any great difficulty, I would have thought. Okay, last two questions. So the lady here in the front. Um, how much good farming land should be left for growing food with a rising population and that question actually leads into whole worldwide food situations but it does slightly worry me yeah, no, I, 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 uh, oh um, shall I kind of just put in another one uh, <laughs> what's, what's well shall I answer that one first oh, oh. I have to say the answer is no well, it's the second one I'm afraid oh. <laughs> <laughs> it won't take long um I mean, the fact is that, that uh, we can build all the houses we need to build with hardly any, 
any uh, uh, loss of good farming land. I mean, good farming land in this country is basically out there in the east. Uh, that's, where you, that's where the stuff really grows. And uh, there's plenty of land where people want to live, which is not good farming land. And, uh, you know, a, a, bit of, a bit of grazing... Did I? Yes. All oh, right. Well, <laughs> okay, let, let's move on to the very I, last I'm question sorry now at this point. <laughs> I said that. It isn't necessary. And, and, and anyway, the numbers are so small that, that it wouldn't make any difference. Sorry, no, I'm, afra- I'm afraid we ha- we've almost finished. You'll have, you'll have to give up the mic at this point. Sorry. You can you can uh, you can email your you can email your question to s.j.nickel at oxford.ac.uk. Tim Oldenburg, CBR. Um, Professor, you said earlier on that there were very few losses uh, from secured lending, actually, and um, you also painted a picture of quite a a strong supply-demand imbalance, so uh, there will have to be rationing. Does that imply um, that uh, mortgage lending will pick up very soon again and we'll see a return to to the similar very high uh, loan-to-value ratios as there was no problem, essentially, with it? And that the rationing will then take place with price again, so we'll see high No, prices. I mean, I think the credit crunch is, going, is carrying on. Uh, basically, until the... Uh, I mean, think of the world. The, uh, China and uh, the oil-producing countries are generating huge surpluses, huge amounts of savings. Uh, and uh, some of those savings used to go into the UK housing market. Now they don't even though the UK housing market is as safe as houses. Uh, and uh, until they do, until the sort of channel of communication, for securitisation or covered bonds or whatever, until that gets reopened, I think there's going to be... still they, There will continue to be a crunch in the, in the UK housing market. So I'd just like to uh, thank Steve very much for a great lecture.